This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. All right, well, it's a pleasure to be here this morning with you all. Um, couldn't think of a better way to spend a, a Christmas day than to be here praising God and worshiping Him uh, and, and being with all of you, uh, the family of Christ. Uh, this morning, we're going to examine uh, the, the birth of the Savior um, and look at the nativity. And we're going to look at some details and the importance of that. And we'll also look at, at the importance of the uh, second nativity. If you didn't know, there was a second one. We'll talk about that this morning. Um, now, as I was thinking about what to talk about and preparing the notes, um, you know, some things come to mind about Christmas Day and the emphasis that people put on the birth of Christ. And, you know, as Pat, as Pat mentioned in the prayer, it's important for us to look at, at not just his birth, but um, so I started to look at some details on 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 Christmas itself, uh, just a couple of notes to kind of uh, give us some information because it's important for us to know details. There's no real consensus if Christ was actually born on December 25th. Uh, that's just a common thing that has, that has occurred uh, that it really was not first mentioned as the date of Christ's birth until the third century, the late third century by Roman bishops. Um, and it was thought to be first celebrated by Emperor Constantine. Um, as a festival that was dedicated to, to Christ on that day. Um, and so there's no real mention of this in early Christian writings, and certainly not any mention of this in the scriptures. Um, there's uh, early Christian writings. Interestingly, when you think about births and celebrating births, early Christian writings did not emphasize his birth and, and births in general because uh, they believed that there was some, uh, that celebrating birthdays was more of a pagan custom, uh, and they actually speak negatively about uh, celebrating birthdays in general, um, and that's kind of their view in those early, uh, in the second, by the second century, that, that was kind of the, the sentiment around birthdays. Um, there is also another, other theories about the origins of December 25th as Christmas and the birthday of Christ and all these things. Uh, some believe that, that December 25th was co-opted from pagan holidays, like Roman uh, Saturnalia, which was a, a uh, winter solstice festival that they held in mid-December, and then there was a day called Sol Evictus, which uh, means the invincible sun, and they worshiped this sun god, and that's the, on the 25th, that's when they would have this big celebration. And so people think that Constantine or others might have co-opted that day as a day to put focus on Christ instead of these pagan idols. Um, and so then it just became uh, a common date. And there's actually other uh, offshoots of Christianity and other religious groups uh, the Eastern Orthodox groups who celebrate uh, Christmas on January 6th. So they don't even celebrate on the 25th. They think that the 6th was his, his birthday. And there's just a lot of debate and a lot of, uh, of different views. And so there's no real consensus on this. Um, you know, there's other celebrations like Yule, uh, which Scandinavians and the Celtics and Nordic and Germanic peoples celebrated, and it was a pagan uh, festival during winter solstice, and they had all kinds of customs um, that you can kind of see present today in our, in our uh, Christmas uh, customs, no pun intended there, but uh, really when you look at all of the history and all the details, what is clear is that Christmas today is just a mix of a lot of various customs, uh, some religious in, in significance and some uh, not really, but uh, it's just a wide mix of various customs, and, and probably in our time and, and day in America, it's mixed in with a heavy dose of materialism uh, because of the commercial and retail 
uh, gains and they're wanting people to buy and buy and buy. And so sometimes the focus gets more on, on the gifts um, than, than you know, the, the days, uh, the meaning of, of Christmas and, and the things to celebrate. Uh, so there's a lot of different ideas. So what should Christians do? I think that's the big qu- question that I've always had. When it comes to celebrating Christmas time, you see all kinds of people celebrating in different ways and mentioning the birth of Christ and emphasizing that, and some don't. Um, and sometimes there's debate about this even in the church. And so the real question I think we should care about the most is what should Christians do with this information? Is it good to celebrate it as Christ's birth? Is it not? Um, really, the answer is, I think, found in Romans chapter 14. You have to decide for yourself. Um, in Romans chapter 14, Paul, in the context of speaking about meats that had been offered to idols, whether it was okay to eat those meats or not, he said this, let not, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, or eateth not judge him that, that eateth. So he's saying if in the context of this idol meat, if, if you look at the very first few uh, verses in that chapter, he says we know that meat is just meat. It doesn't impart any special holiness to you or not. It doesn't corrupt you. It's just meat. And so w- whether you eat it or not, it, it's really not, uh, like, it's just a, an inanimate object. It's really the meaning we ascribe to it that either will uh, condemn us or, or a- approve us. But, uh, and it really comes down to what we think in our conscience. So he says, if you decide to eat it, don't despise the person who won't and look at them as weaker and lesser because they don't have the same frame of reference that you do and the same mindset that you do. And if you're the person who chooses not to eat that, don't look at the person who does eat that meat and condemn them and, and be judgmental against them. Everybody treat each other respectfully. He says, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falleth. And we're the servants of Christ. We're not servants of each other. Um, and he says, uh, this one will be hold, held up for God is able to make him stand. And here's, when we think about the context of Christmas, I think, where it becomes relevant. He says, one man esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. There's differing views. And, and I, you know, I've seen uh, Christians do that, as with, even with birthdays as well. Some say, well, it was just another day. They don't care. Some people put a lot of emphasis and celebrate it, and it's a special day to them. So Paul says, somebody may feel like it's a special day. Somebody may not feel like it's that special every man, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So you have to decide and be fully persuaded in your own conscience. He that regardeth today, you regard it to the Lord. If if you're doing this to honor God, you're honoring God. And if you don't regard the day as special, then it's, you're still honoring God in this way. Um, Because you you are not trying to um, dishonor God, he says, but he that eateth eats to the Lord and he gives God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and gives thanks. So both views uh, can be righteous and godly, and it comes down to your conscience. And so you have to kind of decide for yourself in that respect. I won't really tell you what, what we do, especially not from the pulpit, because it doesn't really matter as far as my own opinion about it. But what matters is that you, you get to decide, uh, and whatever you decide, don't make your conscience and your decision the standard for other Christians. That's important for us to understand. He says in, in verse 13 through 15, he says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. 
I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is something that Jesus Christ himself taught Paul. He says that there's nothing unclean of itself. Days and meats and things like that are just inanimate objects. But it's really what we do with it and the meaning we ascribe to it. And he says, to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And so if you don't feel comfortable uh, celebrating a specific day, putting special value on it, or especially thinking about the context, if they didn't feel comfortable eating specific meats that had been offered to idols because they felt like it would pollute their conscience and pollute their mind, then don't participate in it because it's worse for you to damage your conscience um, than not. And he says, if, if your brother is... Now, on the other hand, if you're the person who does partake and your brother is grieved with your meat, then you're not walking charitably and, and don't destroy him with, with your meat for whom Christ died. So he's saying, with the choice that you've made, if it grieves your, your brother in Christ, uh, then we need to be careful of that and not be pushing it on people, making our conscience and our choice that we've made to either celebrate or not, uh, pushing that on somebody and trying to get them to conform to our way. Instead, we should just be loving and kind and let people have their conscience. Let people uh, have that freedom and that liberty that Christ gives us. And, and think about the way you approach someone in love. Don't destroy them with your decision. And, and remember, Christ died to save them, and we ought to be willing to make a sacrifice like not pushing our own opinion on what we think it is. And if we get mad that somebody celebrates it or if we get mad that somebody doesn't celebrate it, that's not the point. The point is we should just love each other. Um, so I wanted to just say those things because I think it's a question that comes up a lot. And in the face of a lot of debates and a lot of different opinions, we need to just rest on what the scriptures say. Um, and we have some liberty in that regard. Now, regardless of how the world might view and, and everyone is focused on, on this day as Christ's birth or a lot of people are in the religious world, and that's not altogether a bad thing. I think it's good for people to be thinking about it, and at least maybe they're in a frame of mind to be more receptive to, to hearing about Christ. And so with that in mind, we're going to talk about the, the hope that Christ brought into this world in this story of the nativity. And I think really to understand the story of Christ's birth, we have to think about first the great anticipation that Israel held for this moment, because it was a, it was a long-weighted moment. Long had it been prophesied that a king would come and gather all of Israel back together from, that had been scattered abroad throughout the world. They would gather them all together and send salvation throughout the ends of the earth. In, in uh, Isaiah, we have a sampling of the type of prophecies that had been taught about over and over in the Old Testament. There's so many. He says this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see this prophecy here of a child being born. He would be a prince. He would be a king. He would be an eternal king. Um, and this is what the people of Israel were waiting and waiting for. And Peter describes that anticipation, that, long, uh, that longing as, as this in 1 Peter chapter uh, 10, verse 11. He says, um, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. They were waiting for this salvation to come, and they have searched for it diligently and asked diligently. And they were prophesying of the grace that would come at a later time from, from their uh, present day. 
He says they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was, that was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow. So these prophets and these people of old um, throughout all the Old Testament were looking forward to something and they really wanted to know what it was. And after, even after prophecies had ended in that time of the Old Testament and there was a big long gap of 400 year period of silence from God, um, they were waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping for this time to come where this son would be born. And then finally, after that long period of silence, the appointed time had arrived. And so now we'll look at the details, understanding that this was something that the nation of Israel was waiting and waiting for. And we see that expressed in the words of the people when they learn about Christ and his coming um, into this world and the prayers that they make. So I want to examine a few of those things and just see the beautiful words that they have to say about our Savior um, and how excited they were to see this moment come. The nativity story begins with angels that had been sent from God. The angel Gabriel had been sent from God to this young girl, this young virgin named Mary. Um, And he comes to her and he says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. He says, The angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this angel comes to this young girl. You can imagine her astonishment going, why me? And that's kind of her response. She has... She feels like she's lowly, and, and she's just a very, you know, poor person. Uh, probably doesn't feel like there's a reason for her to be chosen, but here she is, and she says, Okay, be, as it, be it as you have said um, unto thy handmaiden. And so he says that you're going to conceive a child, the Holy Ghost will come upon you, and he, he, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. Now, she had not, she, had, she was uh, betrothed to Joseph, and they were going to be wed, and they had not yet come together, and she was a virgin. And now, she's ha- now she has a baby. She's pregnant. Well, Joseph finds out that she's pregnant. And, of course, you can imagine a man in that situation. Um, you know, it says he was a just man and devout, and he would have taken this very seriously, and he would have felt betrayed and said, okay, she's pregnant, and now it's time to put her away. Now, under the law, there were some very strict laws against adultery, and she could have been... I'm sure stoned to death uh, for this act, um, and, you know, from his perspective. But it says that he was a just man, and he wanted to just put her away privately. He didn't want harm to befall her. He just wanted to just end the engagement and and let's just separate and just kind of do this quietly and not make a big deal a- about it. And so, while he was thinking on these things and considering this, and I'm sure he was very troubled. The angel comes to Joseph then at that time. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That's what that that name Emmanuel means, God with us. 
um, and it's, it's God among humanity and, and with humanity. Um, and so the angel talks to Joseph about these things, and what you can see is the faith of Joseph, hearing these things from this angel, giving him this instruction that you should go forward with this marriage, and you should understand that what has, the child that she has conceived is from God, is from the Holy Ghost, it's a miraculous thing, and he has faith in this, and because he is a just and devout man who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the salvation that has been prophesied, and he knows the prophecies, and I'm sure that, that um, this vision uh, was meaningful to him because he goes forward with it, and we see his faith and his conduct during this whole, this whole account and this story. Um, now, there's a, a beautiful prayer when we're thinking about Mary and their lowliness and, and her, her humility. In Luke chapter 1, uh, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and she's there for three months. Uh, but when she first encounters Elizabeth, which is uh, the mother of John the Baptist, um, she says the babe leaped in, in her womb, and Elizabeth says this beautiful prayer, uh, praising and honoring this event that's happened to Mary. And then Mary has her own prayer. And this is, this is really beautiful uh, when you consider the words, because it, it captures well like this longing, this, this uh, anticipation for hope and change and for things to be different and her humility and how lowly she felt. And so she says in Luke 1, 46, Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. You see the, the beautiful words that she speaks here, and it's, it's like, like a sigh of relief. We're being rescued. He's bringing help to those who are in need. He's lifting up those who are lowly. He is scattering the proud uh, from their lofty positions and the, the people who think that, that um, righteousness will not prevail. It will prevail, and that will be put away, and, and the lowly will be lifted up and exalted. And all this is done in remembrance of his covenant to Abraham and to his seed forever. And it's just a, just a magnificent um, prayer and magnificent words. And you can tell how faithful she was in, in speaking these things. Now it comes time for John the Baptist to be born. She's there with her cousin for, for a few months and she leaves. But then it comes time for, for John the Baptist to be born. And he is. Um, and his father then says this beautiful prayer. Um, because this is just a few months before Christ is born. Um, and, and his prayer is wonderful and beautiful. And again, you can see the hope and the anticipation and the longing and this kind of general sigh of relief and excitement to see this day that God has, is bringing about in the birth of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, 67, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and he prophesied. Zacharias is the father of John the Baptist. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So Zacharias has this wonderful prayer and, and speaks of this horn of salvation that is raised up to, to, as Mary said, scatter the proud in their imaginations and cast those things down, to cast the enemies of God away and to save and redeem his people so they can serve him in holiness and in, and in, and in peace. All according to the promise that he made to Abraham and in, in fulfillment of these things that he prophesied way long ago in Genesis chapter 12. Um, and even beyond, he says, the prophets since the world began have been speaking of this moment. And so Zacharias is, is greatly anticipating this, and now they're just, it's at hand. It's just a few months away now. Um, it's very near. And then it comes to pass. Just a few months later, Christ is born. As we know, uh, there was no room for them in Bethlehem uh, because the census was taking place, so everybody was returning to their home countries to pay the, the, uh, the, the tax and uh, imposed on them by the Roman government. And um, there's no room, and so she, she gives birth, and, and Christ is laid there in the manger uh, because there was no room at the inn. Now, not far from Bethlehem, uh, there was shepherds out in the field, and angels appeared to them to announce the birth of this Savior, this horn of salvation from the house of David, he says in Luke 12, the angel said to these shepherds, he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Remember the prophecy of Abraham, uh, that, that in Abraham all nations of the earth would be blessed? This is a connection to that. There's, there's connections in these words that these angels are saying. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and so on this day of Christ's birth, they, they came and they announced this to the shepherds. And the shepherds, uh, of course, they went and searched and found the child to see him and to honor him. Um, but this is so significant because um, as was prayed this morning and as we sang this morning, the word had become flesh, just as John said in John 1:14, Jesus existed before all things. And chapter, in verse 1 of John 1, it says that the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him. And then it says that the Word became flesh. And this is that process when He, the Holy Ghost came upon Mary, and she conceived a child, and that was Christ, and it was the Word made flesh. And it's God with us. God was manifest in the flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. This was what happened in that moment and in this point of history. And it was, it's, it, is a, it, it is an extremely significant moment that happened in time where God became flesh. Now, uh, the, the certain times had passed, an eight, uh, eight days had passed and they circumcised uh, the child, Christ. Um, and then they had to take him to the temple according to the old law to make certain sacrifices to redeem the male children. And in the temple, again, to show you the, the anticipation and the joy and the excitement around this child and the significance that people recognized when Christ was born, there was a man at the temple who came there, and his name was Simeon. 
Simeon was an old man. It doesn't tell us how old, but he was old. And notice these words in Luke chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout. You notice all the people that are praying these prayers and are mentioned in these stories? It really says that about all of them. They were just and devout people. They, they, they were good people. They were honoring God, and they were living their lives in, a, in anticipation of this promise. Um, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting in his life, hoping to see this, and in fact, not, not just hoping, but expecting to see this, because the Holy Ghost uh, revealed to him that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he knew, I'm not going to die until I see this child myself. I see this one that God is talking about myself. And he came by the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought the child to Jesus, uh, brought in the child Jesus for, to do him, uh, for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms. So this old man who's just been waiting to see this day come about for many years, a just and devout man, finally sees this child and he takes him up in his arms and he blesses God. And he says, no, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. He says, now I can die in peace. I've seen what you've told me I was going to see. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people. He's a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And he's just sitting here in awe of this child that he gets to see what God has promised for so long. And what a blessing it would be to be Simeon, to be able to hold that child and know that this child is set for great things and this child is set to help the people of Israel and to help salvation go throughout all the world. And Joseph and his mother, they were both, they marveled at those things, hearing these things that he's speaking um, because they know the prophecies. They know the words of the Old Testament. And they would have made those connections and just been in awe that they were saying this about this child, uh, continually confirming what they had, had been waiting for as well. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon says these, this beautiful prayer, this, it's like this sigh of relief and this joy that it's finally here, the day that God has promised to bring this one into the world who would be our king. And he knows it. This is our king. And he is an eternal king from the house of David. Um, now, as he talks about here, Jesus is the light to lighten the Gentiles. And that's exactly, that's exactly uh, who he is and what he is. And he, he shone that light as he went about, as he grew older and began his ministry and was baptized. Uh, it says he went about, he left the wilderness and went through the shores of, of Zebulon and he went down uh, towards Galilee, and it says it was so that he would fulfill the prophecy that says the land of Zebulun and Nephilim, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the prophecy says this, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That light is Christ, obviously, coming into the world and showing himself and going about doing these works, but also speaking these words and teaching people about the kingdom of God being at hand. 
and this was a welcome message to some because it was a people and, and really the world was sitting in darkness. We were sitting without hope. We were sitting in the region and shadow of death. So there was this heaviness in the world and among the people of Israel especially, being cast down, being scattered abroad, being under the hand of their enemies, being under this curse of death. The world was groaning together, waiting for this moment. And then finally in the darkness comes this bright ray of light, this message of the the kingdom of heaven. And that light, when you shine a light in dark places, is blinding. And just as Simeon prophesied to Mary and told her, a sword is going to pierce through your own soul, he's speaking of the death of Christ and the resurrection, or the the death of Christ that uh, she was going to witness, her child, this one that God had given her, who was supposed to be the savior of the world, she was going to witness the brutal murder of this innocent man. And he was, he was going to be a sign that would be spoken against, and indeed he was, because not everyone loves the light. In John chapter 3.19, it says, Jesus says, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And it also says in John 1 that he came into the world and the world received him not. They didn't know and didn't care that this was the light of the world. The people who saw it, saw it and rejoiced for this day. But many people did not. They hated this light. They hated Christ. And therefore he died on the cross because he was rejected. This son of God, the savior, the horn of salvation suffered greatly this deep rejection of his own people by his own people that he came to save and was instead crucified on the cross instead of welcomed with open arms Philippians chapter 2 and he being found in fashion as a man God with us humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of the cross God was with us and we killed him because we couldn't stand Humanity could not stand to look at the brightness of this light because we loved darkness more than the light. And so God died on a cross. And it was critical for Christ, this story of the nativity, it doesn't end with Christ being born in the, in the world. That's just the beginning of the story. Um, and that is important, sure, because it was critical for Christ to come into this world physically. It was important for God in the flesh to come into this world, but His purpose was to die. That's the whole reason He was born, so that He could die. That's what Philippians 2, or Hebrews chapter 2 says in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's why He came into this world. Though He was crowned with glory and honor, but He, by the grace of God, was, was going to taste death for everyone. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It, it became him. It was necessary for Jesus, the one who created everything, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of you and I. The creator of humanity had to become like humans so that he would taste death for everyone. And, and without the nativity story, there is no second nativity. And the second nativity 
is the fact that Christ was born from the dead. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is described as the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. He is the firstborn to, to come back from the grave. He died physically, and he's the first one to come back. And this was his entire purpose, was so that he could be resurrected and he could be raised physically. This is the light that would shine in the darkness and give hope to the people of not only Israel, but also to all the world. In Acts chapter 2, it says, the, summarizing the prophets and the things that the prophets were teaching in the Old Testament, that Christ should suffer and that He should be the first that would rise from the dead and should show light to the people and to the Gentiles. He was bringing us light in this darkness that we sat in. We were in the shadow and the valley of death, yet Christ brought life, and that is the light. And as John says, uh, that is the light of men. He is the light of men and brings to us life. And, and again, he's the first to be physically raised to life and not only back to life so that he can die again, but he's raised to eternal life. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. And so death has no more dominion over him. Jesus broke free from the bondage of death and broke the power of, of Satan and this hold that he has over humanity by... by death, holding death over our heads and holding us in that grip, Jesus came and broke that free and death now has no more rule over him. He will never die again. He will never face that pain. He will never face that separation ever again. And he was the first one to be born from that state of being in the grave, coming back to life and being raised to that eternal life. He was born into physically, born back again into physical life. And that's why I call this the second nativity, uh, because he was born again from the dead. Jesus himself says this in Revelations 1.18. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death, of hell and death. And so in dying, coming into this world physically, God in the flesh would die, be buried, and be raised again from death so that he would conquer the grave, so that he would take hold again over, uh, take the power and, and preeminence over even death. And so uh, this is the horn of salvation. He was physically born from the dead to eternal life, and that is how the Savior would, that was born into the world, the Word become flesh, would be born again and raised up as the horn of salvation in the house of David, to be a light to all the world and to deliver us out of the hand of our enemies. And this is how Jesus accomplishes that. And everything that the, the Gentiles, uh, the Jew and Gentile alike have been waiting for, this answer to the problem of death and sin in our lives. And in this act, in this process, He makes it possible for us to be cleansed of our sins and to also be joined with Him. And, and He takes His place as the firstborn of all, the firstborn of all creation. It says in Colossians chapter 1, it describes this beautifully. Beginning in chapter four, or verse 14, he says, In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, not just a likeness, not just a, a, a similar, a similar uh, appearance to God. He is the express image. He is the exact copy, the exact replica and stamp of the invisible God in the flesh. And He is the firstborn of every creature, 
Now, some have taken that to mean that he is the first created being, and that's not the case. But he, has, he sits as the firstborn. Like, like God said, this day are thou, I, he established him as my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's giving him the rights of the firstborn as the heir of all things. And so he is the, the first one, the one with all the rights and the authority over every creature. And it's not possible for him to be, he's not the first created being because he's the one that created everything. And that's the case that Paul makes in verse 16. To, to answer any doubts in that, he says, For by him, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Everything that exists, exists because of Christ, whether it's visible and inv- or invisible. Whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, the, the uh, establishment of governments and of these boundaries of their power and these different hierarchies of thrones and dominions, Christ created them all. The order of angels, the order of, of the orders of, of the powers among men, He created everything. He created every physical thing all in the universe. All things were created by Him and for Him. They're made in, in service to, to Christ because He is God. Um, and He came in the flesh. And it says He is before all things. He existed before everything. And by Him all things exist and, and consist. They come from Him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. So Jesus sits, as far as preeminence goes, he is the the source of all things. He came into this world and is the firstborn among all humanity who has the rights and the, 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 the birthright and especially the kingdom because he is set up as the throne of David among God's people Israel and gives access to all people to this blessing. And to top that off, he went into the grave and was the firstborn from the dead so that in every way, from top to bottom, he has preeminence in everything. He is the first. He is the supreme. He is the last. He is everything. He saves us from, he creates us to have life, and he saves us from death and the destruction that Satan brought about into our lives. And, and again, firstborn of creation, meaning that he's the heir. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he says that God in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And so Jesus is the one who created everything, and he is the heir over it all. He has the authority and the power over everything, even over death, because he was the first one to be born from the dead to eternal life. What a beautiful, what a beautiful and wonderful nativity story. It begins with him being physically born, yes, but it continues and, and ends with him being raised to eternal life. And that is the nativity that we should really care as much about. Now, how can we become part of this story? I think it's important for us to reflect on that, to, to remember that blessing that we've been uh, made part of. And God knew the method of making people part of this story and part of eternal life was to be conformed to the image of His Son. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, He says then, We know that all things work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Um, now, what does that mean to be called? Well, He explains 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to become to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now some people, like the, the Calvinist doctrines and even others, that maybe even others before him, and others certainly others after him, and even today, believe this is saying that God predetermines who is saved, and he, he pre-elected people to be saved or not. That's not what this is saying. God is saying that to the people who would be called according to his purpose, he knew he, pre, he did predetermine the method of being saved and the method of being justified, and that was to be conformed to the image of His Son. God pre-planned that. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be part of my people, you must be conformed to the image of, of His Son. And Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren, and then we could be born again in Christ uh, after Him. And He says, those who He predestinated, those also He called. That's how you are called if you step into this predetermined method and conditions that God has set to be saved. Uh, and those that He called, He also justified, and those He justified, He is glorified. So if you want to be glorified, if you want to be justified, if you want to be part of this calling that God has made, it requires us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that conformity comes in the model of His death and His resurrection. Paul explained that just a couple of chapters before in Romans chapter 6. He's saying this is the, the image that we must conform to. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead, he was born from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. It's like we've been reborn if we're buried with him in baptism and raised up. If we've been planted or united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you see the, the imagery that is here? of this death and this being born again and, and again. The Bible fittingly calls that process when we're baptized into Christ, being born again. That's what Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus where he says you must be born again because it's a reflection of this process of being born from the dead into eternal life. And it's like a preview of what's going to come. And so if we are Christ's by this process, and I, I know that many of us are, um, then we will get to partake, partake of a resurrection just like Jesus. And, in, and once we're raised, death will have no reign over us whatsoever, and we will be like Him. Jesus describes different aspects of the resurrection like this. In Luke chapter 20, verse 35, He says, But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world... He's answering a question of people who had, were confused about the resurrection... But he says, the people that are, that are counted as worthy to obtain that world, that, that inheritance of the kingdom of God um, at the end, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or given in marriage. So he's answering a question again of, of the Sadducees about marriage. Uh, it was a trick question, but he's telling them there's not going to be any marriage uh, in the resurrection. But he says, the detail here, neither can they die anymore. So we won't be able to die anymore. They are equal to the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. So Jesus gives important details about that time when we're resurrected. We will, just like Christ was born into eternal life, so will we. We will not die anymore. We will be equal to the angels in their nature and this spiritual uh, form, uh, bodily form. We'll have, and it will be similar to them, and we will be accounted as the children of God if we're children of the resurrection. And so 
we're conformed to the image of Christ and His Son, uh, of, of Christ the Son, by being baptized to Him, but that begins our life of conformity to being like Christ. And if we're accounted worthy, that means we have to, to, to be accounted worthy, that means we have to strive, we have to live a certain way, we have to follow the commandments of the Scriptures. We can't just be uh, born again and do whatever we want. We have to be born again and live according to Christ and His, uh, His commandments, of course, and pursue just like those devout people that we read about, like the Marys and the Josephs and the Simeons and the Zacharias and all the people that were faithful and just and devout, waiting for that time when Christ would come, we should live justly and devoutly, waiting for that time of Christ to come into the world so that we can be born from the dead into eternal life once for all. And we won't have to suffer death any longer. We won't have to suffer from sin any longer. Everything will be made right. He will have gathered up all His people. He will put all enemies away. And that sin that you suffer with in your life will be gone. That fear that you suffer with in your life from dying and being separated from all of those, uh, from, from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially separation from God, will be gone. And we'll get to, just as those people, when they saw Christ born into this world, they had the sigh of relief. We will have a we will have a similar experience where we can just live in, in the sense of relief because we've been rescued and He's helped us. Such lowly people with all the problems that we have, He will come and help His people and lift us up out of the grave and off of this earth and we will inherit the kingdom. And if we're children of the resurrection, again, we'll be born into eternal life just like Jesus Romans chapter 8, verse 11, he says, If the Spirit of Him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's not just, that's, that's uh, encapsulating a lot of things, namely being baptized into Christ, and we receive that being put into Jesus and He in us, but also in the context of Romans 8, he says those who walk in the Spirit, continually living and pursuing the things of God, if that Spirit dwells in you, He that raised Jesus from the dead, Again, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He will also make you alive. He will quicken your physical bodies, your mortal bodies, by His Spirit that dwells in you. Um, we will have the capacity to be born from that grave if we are found in Christ and live in this life now. And so when we think about the, the story of the nativity, don't forget the second nativity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, born from the dead so that he can raise you up again. And I hope that this study this morning has been encouraging to you. Um, I hope it's been as encouraging to you as it has to me. It's, it's certainly a stirring reminder as I'm reading these words to think about how I should be living life and, and things that we ought to be doing so that we might be found worthy of eternal life. Um, if you're here this morning and need the prayers of the church, we're here for you as the family of Christ to raise you up and and pray for you so that God may lift you up. Um, and if you're here this morning and want to be part of this story of the nativity of Christ being born again, then we stand ready to help and assist with that. And so if you'd like to be baptized in the Christ, of course, we, we are very excited for that and, and would love to help you if, if you would like to do that this morning. Um, if there's nothing further, we will stand and we will sing this song.
and you can come forward and let your wishes be known um, as we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.